Our scripture today comes from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, and I'll be reading verses 23 and 24, and then dropping down to verses to verse 28 and 29. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for, to cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says, they divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. So as Matt said, we are preaching at Knox these days through the so-called seven last words of Christ, words that Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. And many of these are quite notable. We, a couple of weeks ago, looked at, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Or we have the dramatic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But today we have one of the more ordinary, less dramatic words of Jesus, where he simply says, as he is hanging on the cross, I am thirsty. There's a little bit of irony that um, I have come down with a cold, so I brought my visual aid here today. <laughs> and if I now and then take a sip, it will remind you of Jesus being thirsty on the cross. So Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has passed his sentence and handed Jesus over to the guards to be crucified, and they have taken him out to the place of crucifixion, where they have stripped him of his clothing, nailed him to the cross, and put two others condemned that day as well alongside of him. And then we read in the text that they are underneath the cross or near it, and they are casting lots to see who would get the pile of remains that these men had left. It's a pretty tawdry business, this crucifixion, as these Roman soldiers wait for Jesus and these others simply to die and decide to share, to cast lots to see who gets his stuff. And in the midst of this, as they are, as the soldiers are doing this, Jesus simply says, I'm thirsty. It's pretty ordinary. We've all said it at one time or another. When it's a hot day and you're working in the yard, suddenly you realize, I'm thirsty. Or maybe you're running a fever while sick, and as you are suffering from, the, from that fever, you think, I'm thirsty. Or maybe you're running a marathon and it's not even a particularly hot day, but suddenly about mile 10 or 12 or 26, you think, I am thirsty. And sometimes we are so desperately thirsty, we just want something to drink. It's a common human response to all kinds of situations which face us in the ordinary living of day to day. Now, to be sure, Jesus says these ordinary words in very extraordinary circumstances. He's hanging on a cross. His life is ebbing away. And of all the things he could ask for, 
He just wants a drink. And so he says, I'm thirsty. Now, this is not the first time we have seen Jesus ask for a drink in the Gospel of John or have been told that he is thirsty. So let me take you back, if I may, to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. We are told it's the middle of the day, so it is hot. If you've ever traveled in the Middle East, in what is Israel, and uh, Samaria is now in what we call the uh, Palestinian territories, and you're sitting there at noon, the only two things you are looking for are shade and water. And so here's Jesus having walked a long way. We are told, and he sits down, and he's tired, and he's thirsty. Even if it's not the middle of summer, it is the middle of the day. The rest of the disciples have gone into the village to find some food, something to eat, and Jesus is resting. And he sees coming towards him a woman from the village. And she has what he doesn't have. She's got a bucket so that she can get water out of that well. And so Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, if you remember this story, you know that she's quite surprised by what he says because he is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. And you don't have to read far in the Gospels or the New Testament or even stories in the Old Testament to know that there is little love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. They aren't exactly best friends. And now Jesus is beholden to her. If he wants a drink, he's going to have to get it from her, this woman who is one of the perceived enemies of the Jews. But Jesus wants a drink, and he wants it for one reason— He's thirsty. Now, this little story reminds us of something that we say in the church about Jesus. And it's a formulation that goes like this. He was fully God and fully human. Now, when we say fully God, we use words like this. He is Lord, Savior, Son of God, Word of God, Word of God incarnate, fully God. But we also say that he is fully human. And many of us struggle to understand what it means that Jesus was a human being like we are. That he was subject to the weakness of our human conditions. Now, in theory, we know that he was a man. At Christmas, we read the stories of his birth. We see in the Gospels that he ate at table with outcasts and sinners, so he uh, must be like we are, needing to eat. We see that he sleeps, we see that he suffers, and he dies. And we read here that he got thirsty. So when we are tempted to think of Jesus as a superman or a superhero who has powers that we don't have, remember that on that cross he did nothing to relieve himself of his agony except ask for what human beings normally ask for in situations like this. I need a drink. I'm thirsty. Now, the early church, the church of the first few centuries, also had difficulties with Jesus as a human being, and they struggled to understand what that might mean. So that one of the earliest, what we call false teachings or heresies in the church, was the belief that Jesus only seemed to be a human being. But he wasn't really human like we are. So maybe his humanity was like a disguise which he could put on sneak in and do something that looked oh so human, sneak out, take it off, and be done. It's like a Halloween costume. Jesus tonight is pretending to be a human being. 
But as a matter of fact, it's not who he really is. But the early church thought that was wrong, that he really was a human being. But there are some stories in the ancient world where you can see why they might have gotten that idea. And I want to take you back maybe to your junior high or high school uh, English class, or maybe earlier, where you perhaps read the Greek myths or the Iliad and the Odyssey. And there were stories in them of gods who came to earth disguised as human beings. And then they did certain things, manipulated situations, helped out their favorite, and were gone. Now, the interesting thing about these stories is that any one of the gods could come and appear as any number of human beings for any length of time. So to give you just one example, we have stories of the goddess Athena, who appears on Earth actually disguised as Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey. She also appears disguised as a young girl, an old shepherd, an old man, and a grown woman. In other words, there's nothing permanent or lasting about the humanity that she appears as. She comes in disguise, does her thing, and disappears. So is that what Jesus was like? Did he just put on this disguise of a human being, come and do his thing, and disappear? Let me take you to the Old Testament, to stories in the, a story, uh, or a couple really, in the book of Genesis, where angels come to earth and similarly play a brief role in a story, but then disappear. And you might remember the angels who visited Abraham in the book of Genesis, and he offers them hospitality, and then they're gone. Or the angel who wrestled with Jacob. These angels appear for a period of time on earth, and they look like human beings, or they seem to be human beings, but they really don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end to their life like human beings do. They just swoop down, appear, do something, and disappear. So maybe Jesus was like an angel, a heavenly spirit, but without a real body, without a body that endured a beginning and middle and end of life on this earth. So I want to tell you a story from something that we call today the Testament of Abraham. This is a first century Jewish document, probably written in Egypt, but we're not positive about that. But it tells us the story of the archangel Michael, who pays a visit to Abraham. This story is modeled on the uh, stories in the book of Genesis, but with a little more creative license. So Michael has been sent on a mission by, from God to tell Abraham that his time has come, and he should get ready to die because the end is at hand. So Michael goes to Abraham's tent, and uh, Abraham, as is his custom, is very hospitable, welcomes Michael into his tent, um, and he doesn't know who Michael is because Michael doesn't appear with you know, glory shining around, not like the angels in the book of Luke. He appears as an ordinary human being. So Michael then faces three dilemmas that show us the difference between an angel and a human being. Problem number one. It's sunset. Now, this is time typically to eat a meal, but Michael has a problem because this is also the time of day when the angels in heaven are supposed to sing the praise of God. And the thing is, Michael is the choir director, the angelic choir director, so he's supposed to be there, not here. So he sneaks out of the tent, goes back to heaven, leads the angels in praise, comes back to earth, and sneaks back into Abraham's tent. So the, the, the disguise is, is still holding. Problem number two. 
Michael really doesn't want to do the mission he's been sent on. God has told him, you've got to go tell Abraham his time is up. And Michael says, I don't want to do it. I, I, I just don't want to tell him. And God says, oh, okay, I'll take care of it. I'll send a dream to Abraham's son, Isaac. And Isaac will know that Abraham's time has come. And then Isaac can tell Abraham, so Michael's off the hook. Problem number three. Since angels are heavenly beings, they don't have bodies, so they can't eat. So Michael walks into Abraham's tent, sees this big table spread with food, and says, uh-oh. And he leaves the tent and goes and says to God, what am I going to do? He's got food out there, and I'm supposed to eat it, but I can't eat. You know, by this time, you're beginning to think Michael is neither very clever nor very brave. You would, for an archangel, you would think he could maybe do a little bit better. But here he is kind of whining to God, uh, problem number three, I can't eat the food, and he's going to know I'm not a human being. He's going to know I'm an angel. And God says again, oh, all right, I'll take care of it. And he sends a devouring spirit that just eats everything up on the table. <laughs> so you see the point. Michael's visit to earth as a human being is a charade. He can't and doesn't participate in the normal routines of earth. He escapes to heaven to do his real job. He has to have God come and intervene because he can't carry out the mission he's been given. He can't eat, so he avoids eating and instead has to have God come in and fix the problem for him. So he's always got this sort of secret out so that he doesn't live the life of a human being. He doesn't have the needs and habits of human beings because he doesn't have a physical body. So was Jesus like that? Was Jesus someone without a human body? an angel who swooped in, pretending to be one of us, and when no one was looking, swooped back to heaven, didn't eat, had God destroy all the food, had God do for him what he couldn't do for himself. You know, maybe he really was a superhero and not one of us at all. It's a very interesting thing that critics of early Christianity, those who tried to debunk the Christian confession of Jesus as fully God and fully human, saw the problem quite differently. They didn't have any problems with Jesus' human body, with Jesus as fully human, because some of them had actually read the Gospels. And in there they saw Jesus got hungry, Jesus got thirsty, Jesus died. But because Jesus had a body with physical needs, because he was capable of suffering and dying, and because he got hungry and tired and thirsty, he couldn't possibly have been God. Because gods don't get thirsty and tired, and gods don't need to eat. A real God doesn't have real human needs. A real God doesn't get hungry or tired or thirsty, let alone die. After all, if angels don't do these things, and if the gods and the stories of the Greek myths don't do these things, why would you say that your God does? So these critics of Christianity did not doubt Jesus' humanity. That was the one thing that was really clear about him. They didn't even think he was Superman. They just thought he was an ordinary man. After all, didn't Christians say he died on a cross? Didn't the gospel say he got hungry? And didn't the gospel say he got thirsty? You call that a god? Some god that is. Yes, say Christians, some god that is. 
Jesus is the word of God made flesh, flesh like you and I have, flesh that gets weak and tired and hungry and thirsty. God is a human being, truly God, but truly man, here asking for a drink. Whether it's from the Samaritan woman at the well, from Roman soldiers who are crucifying him, he is beholden to his perceived enemies. It's pretty hard to see anything in those stories other than vulnerability and weakness, mortality, humanity. So here's Jesus, vulnerable, in pain, and thirsty. As the critics of early Christianity said, some God that is. I want to look next then at the statement in the scripture that said, Jesus said, I am thirsty in order to fulfill the scripture. When you read that kind of statement in the New Testament that something happened in order to fulfill the scripture, usually we're looking for some sort of prophecy or promise or prediction. Something will happen and then we see that it was fulfilled. So what would a prophecy look like? What would a prediction look like that Jesus might have fulfilled when he said, I am thirsty? Well, it would be nice if we could find a text that would say something like this. Someday a savior will come and you'll know he's the savior when he says, I am thirsty. Or maybe he will be the one who needs a drink. The problem is we don't have any such text. We don't have any text that are promises or prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about looking for someone who is or will be thirsty. We do have a lot of texts that talk about people being thirsty. And that's not so surprising when the climate of the Middle East is pretty much like the climate of Southern California, where the temperatures climb and water can be scarce. Now, the texts that are probably most in view in terms of people being thirsty in situations of need come from the Psalms, and more specifically from what we call the Psalms of Lament. The Psalms of Lament are a series of psalms in which someone uh, is praying out of desperation and need. We don't always know the situation, but they give very graphic descriptions of what they are experiencing and feeling. So you hear things like this. Uh, I'm in a pit, it's a miry pit, a very muddy pit, I'm sinking and I can't get out. Sometimes the psalmist will go on, and if you've ever had the flu, you get this, I ache all over. Sometimes the psalmist says, I'm afraid. Sometimes the psalmist says, I'm dying. But often he says something like this, I'm waiting and nothing's happening, God, you don't hear me, and you don't answer. And so these psalms of lament, also I want to talk to you about two of them. The first one is Psalm 22, which is perhaps one of the best-known psalms of lament, and begins with those famous last words also spoken by Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm includes these lines, and listen to this description of a person Uh, talking about what they feel like. My strength is dried up like a piece of broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You've set me down in the dirt of death. Dogs are all around me. A pack of evil, evil people circle me like a lion. Meanwhile, they just stare at me 
watching me. They divvy up my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothes. Did you hear what the psalmist said? My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I can't swallow. It's so dry. In other words, I'm thirsty. You've put me in the dirt of death, says the psalmist to God. In other words, I'm dying. They've taking, they're taking my stuff. In fact, they're dividing my garments by casting lot for my clothes. And that is exactly a description, a graphic picture of desperate need that describes what the Gospel of John says is going on when Jesus is hanging on the cross. They are casting lots for his clothing. They are circling him, looking at him as he dies. And his mouth is so dry that he simply says, I'm thirsty. There's another similar psalm of lament that goes like this. This is Psalm 69, just a portion of it. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. So you can see someone drowning. The water's there, but he can't drink it. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. In that description, the psalmist says, I'm sinking, and I can't tell that there's any firm footing. Maybe I'm just going to keep going down. And as I'm going down, I feel like I'm drowning. The waters are up to my neck. I don't know if I can keep this up. I am tired of crying, I am tired of weeping, and I am so incredibly thirsty. My throat is parched. These are the prayers of someone who is suffering a great deal. We don't know what the problem is. Perhaps the person is desperately ill. Maybe they're being persecuted or attacked by friends or enemies. Maybe they're just emotionally or spiritually at their wits' ends, and they feel as though they're being overwhelmed by the floodwater, sinking in the mud, and there is no foothold. This pit could be a pit of discouragement, of despair, of dread, anxiety. There's no foothold. And the psalmist says, I'm thirsty. So these scriptures, I think, are fulfilled by Jesus' words when he says, I am thirsty. They aren't prophecies or predictions. They are really prayers. But they are prayers or poems that describe the human predicament, the human plight of suffering, of desperation, of fear. And it's summarized by very graphic terms, I'm thirsty. When Jesus says, I am thirsty, he joins himself to all those who have prayed these psalms over the years, crying out to God in need and in hope. Then the text tells us when he said, I am thirsty, they gave him a sour wine to drink. Now, our best guess that this is something that the Roman soldiers used in battle and other places, something that they would have called pasca, and I think of it kind of as an ancient kombucha. You know, it's a fermented, lightly fermented drink that they used in situations of great thirst. So they have some, and it says they gave it to Jesus on a sponge, and he drank it. So he did have needs. He's not Superman. Sometimes we wonder, does Jesus know what it's like to be us? Maybe he doesn't. He doesn't really get it. After all, he was fully God. 
But these words from the Psalms, this simple statement, I am thirsty, couched in the Psalms that describe the desperate plight of these people, yearning for help, sinking in whatever plight surrounds them. These words tell us Jesus knows what it's like to be us. On the cross, there is no foothold for him. On the cross, they are dividing his garments, taking away the last things he has. On the cross, as he is dying, he is thirsty. Does he know our plight? He knows. He knows our suffering. He knows our needs. He knows our struggles. Jesus shows us a God who cares for us, who knows us, who is with us. As Psalm 23 says, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Our good shepherd goes with us every step of the way. Now imagine if the story just ended there. Would that be good news? A God who knows us and shares our suffering and death is a God who is near to us. But is he a God who can get us out of the pit? Is he a God who provides a foothold for us when the pit seems full of muck and quicksand, threatening to overcome us, to suck us down? Does it help if God just goes down with us? Let me take you back once more to the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Remember the story, Jesus comes and asks for a drink because he's thirsty, and the woman is puzzled. Why would you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? And Jesus gives her this answer. If you knew who I am, who it is that is really asking you for a drink, who it is that is asking you for a cup of water, you would have asked me. You would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. I can give you water that will quench your thirst forever, a different kind of thirst than the physical thirst, but that kind of thirst that the psalmist feels when he or she is so overcome by the circumstances of life. I can give you water, says Jesus, that will make you live. Jesus gives us living water, the water of life, the water that gives life. He pours out life like we pour out water. And here's the wonderful, life-giving irony, the gospel-shaped twist in this story, that the Jesus who was asking us for, asking people for a drink, the Samaritan women, the the Roman soldiers, that the one who is thirsty, the one who asks for a drink, is the very one who can give us the water of life. He became what we are. He became like us so that he might give us what only he can give. The real story in John 4 is not that a Jew asks a Samaritan for water, but that the one who is asking is actually the one who can give her life-giving water. The real story in John 19 is not that a colonized and subjugated Jew asks Roman soldiers for a drink, but that the one who is asking is pouring out, even as he dies, his life for them and for all the world. Jesus, is the one, Jesus, the one who is asking for a drink, is the very one who can give us the water of life through his life and death, through his suffering there on the cross. 
The one who is with us when we are in the pit that seems like it has no firm footing is himself that firm footing that we seek. When you think there is no bottom to the pit you are in, know that he is not only there with you, but he is the footing that you seek. Trust him. He'll hold you. The one who has experienced the darkness of human atrocity and the depths of pain, who is with us in that darkness that we experience, is not overcome by the power of that darkness as we are so apt to be. He himself is the light that shines in the darkness, and he brings that light into the darkness with us. The one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and is subject to death like we are, and who will die on that horrible Roman cross, will not stay dead because he himself has the power of life and he himself is life. He comes to us in our suffering and death to join himself to us, but also to bring to us the power of life. And the one who is thirsty, who uttered towards the very end of his life the simple, ordinary statement of need, I am thirsty, can himself quench our thirst with living water. Amen.